This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be complained about by my co-host and your friend, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, November 23rd, 2012. This is our 95th episode. We'd like to say thank you very much to our sponsor, Shutterstock.com, Rackspace's new cool thing called Mailgun.com, and Hover.com. As well, Shopify, a hosted e-commerce solution, allows you to set up and run your own online store in just minutes. Pick a template, add your products, pick your payment processor, and ship your stuff with just a few clicks. It's easy to sell anything you want. You sell it online. Electronic stuff, physical stuff, you name it. They've got tons of e-commerce templates. They've got level one PCI DSS compliance and so much more. All you need is something to sell. Go to shopify.com slash five by five and you will get three months free. That's right. Shopify.com slash five by five. Go check them out. Finally, Bandwidth for November is brought to you by MindNode, an intuitive mind mapping app for Mac and iOS. Brainstorm for your next project, organize your life, plan your vacation, you name it. Go check them out at mindnode.com. How are you, John Syracuse? Doing fine on this Black Friday, Dan. You out there shopping? You hitting the uh, hitting the streets shopping? I'm hitting the internet. Oh, does that count? That, that counts for something. Much lower chance of being trampled to death. <laughs> what are you getting on the internet? I don't know. Same things I always get: computer stuff. Computer stuff like what? People want to know. They want to know. I'm stalking a cheap SD card. In preparation for doing my data transfer from my Wii to my as yet unpurchased Wii U. Oh. Because you need an SD card for that. Okay. And I don't have any hanging around, I don't think. So I'll try to get one of those at ridiculous bargain prices. Uh, I'll look at the Apple deals, see if anything good there. I doubt there'll be anything good because it'll just be like, you know, 10 bucks off or 30 bucks off or something. Uh, and I don't know. I'm just poking around for, you know, stuff like batteries and extension cords. <laughs> It's not that exciting or important, but if you can get one for like 98% off, you're like, all right, well, yeah. if I need that, if I needed that already, you why know, not? Now's the, now's the time to get that stuff. Not looking to buy anything I don't actually need just because it's cheap. Right. You want, you want the stuff you need. That's all. As the old people say, that's how they get you. Or at least some old people <laughs> say that. something like that. All right. And, and uh, there's another reason this is a Black Friday. And what reason is that, Dan? Ah, it is a Black Friday, I suppose, because we're going to discuss the end of Hypercritical, which is not this episode. We've got five more after this. That's right. But the, the uh, show that you are listening to now will yes. be ending at episode 100. Including episode 100. Yes, including. And that sounds like a nice round number, but it's not really. It's not like, I, you know, oh, thanks for 100 episodes, right? Because two of those were kind of criticals, which were, you know, episodes where Marco and Merlin filled in for me. So it's not really 100 episodes. Uh, but yes, as you announced in your 5x5 five five State of the Union address on, when was that, like Monday or something? Uh, yes, that was Monday that I released that, I think, or su- Sunday, I believe. All right, uh, so Marco's ending Build and Analyze, and I am also ending this show. Both of uh, you have done, um, or what, he's done more than 100 episodes. Somehow he got ahead of you. I thought they, I thought you started first, but I'm not... No, he's, he started first. Okay, he started a little bit first, so he's done a few more episodes but both of you guys, as, a, as I said in the State of the Union address and as you, have, uh, as you have mentioned on Twitter and hopefully we'll go into more detail now, this has been 
Uh, and you, you had said to me the very first time when I, after you were on the pipeline interview with me and you did a show, a conversation with me where we had Gabe Newell on. And I was so uh, thrilled to do those shows with you that I proposed that we do a regular show. And you at the time said, I don't, I don't know how much I actually have to complain about. However, I will do some shows. And uh, I don't know if that means a, a few months or more. Turns out, more than two years worth of stuff to complain about. And you would always tell me, I don't know how many more I can do, but I'll do some more. And uh, so I always knew that one day, that, that the day would come where you would say, I'm, I'm done complaining for a little while or forever. Yep. I mean, I, people have been asking why, why and now. And, and by the way, uh, many, many people have replied by Twitter and email and stuff to, to say thank you for the show and that they enjoyed it or alternately to beg me not to stop. I, I have not been able to respond to every single one of those replies because there's just, there's just too many of them. So I just, my policy was I can't respond individually unless someone asks some sort of specific question. Uh, but I do appreciate everyone sending their tweets and their emails, even if I didn't respond to you, it's just because there were too many. I was, I was surprised by the outpouring and it was very nice to see, uh, all the affection and thanks. Uh, and surprisingly, this is also, I take this opportunity to gauge the, uh, success of various social networks or how people use things way more tweets than emails. Mm. Like, you know, because we have the feedback form and every week we get feedback about the show mm -hmm. and follow up and stuff like that or whatever. So people know where that form is, but the vast, vast, vast majority of people saying anything about the ending of the show came through Twitter. Right. That literally, literally thousands of them, whereas the number of emails, it was maybe, you know, like 20, 30 or 40. So uh, that's interesting to me just from a sort of digital, digital uh, anthropological perspective <laughs> that if you, because if you want to send just like a little note, like, hey, thanks for the show, like you don't want to write, sit down and write a big long email. You just want to say some nice thing. Twitter is the perfect medium for that. So. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I appreciate all that. Also on app.net, people have been saying slightly longer things, 255 character things. Uh, but yeah, I feel like the, at this point, the show has, has run its course. Like when I started the show, uh, and you're right, it was basically for people who don't know behind the scenes, it was like pulling teeth to get me to do this show. Uh, Dan, Dan is nothing if not persistent. And so he eventually <laughs> managed to do it. But it was not like, you know, he, you put in considerable effort to coerce me into doing the show at all. Like, you know, period. Uh, and so once I did it, I'm like, all right, I have a list of topics I want to cover and, you know, a few broad areas. You did. I remember in the beginning, I've never seen the list, by the way, but you had this long detailed list that, uh, that, that you would, uh, you would refer to. Yeah. And it wasn't that detailed. Like one line item was like toasters. And that's all it said. It was just a bullet point in the word toasters. Right. So that was sitting there on the list. Right. You know, I had uh, video game consoles and, you know, a bunch of, uh, large, topics of course television that was the very first show lots of big topics we want to do and i would add to that list eventually i just stopped using that list but i had in mind a certain set of topics and i think i've covered pretty much everything i wanted to cover uh, this show was never meant as sort of an ongoing news type program where we like you know i don't know like an example like twitter or something where you just start or even i mean i guess amplified kind of where we're like the, the the show is led a little bit by the news like Occasionally, we use the news as a jumping off point to discuss a topic like the last show we talked about ARM and Apple. And that was using uh, that story in whatever it was, Business Week or whatever, about uh, rumors of Apple switching to ARM processors uh, in its Macs. That was the news instigation, but it wasn't the, the show wasn't about let's talk about that news. It was, it was used not even a current a, event. It just if, if there was something there that triggered a thought for you, 
then that would could be a topic of conversation potentially. Right. So that so you know, it was used as a way to uh, enter into a conversation about some a broader topic. Uh, and of course, talking about major news events every year was also expected, like the Apple keynotes or significant Apple new hardware. Of course, we're going to talk about those, you know, leading up to it and stuff like that. But that still leaves many, many weeks in the year uh, where there's not a major Apple event and there's not something in the news that just coincidentally serves as a jumping off point to a broader topic that I wanted to talk about. Uh, so one of the big questions of uh, people who didn't want the show to end is say, why not just do the show less frequently? We're like, all right, so maybe there's not, you don't want it to be a news show and there's not a lot of topics. But right, do it every two do weeks, it every, do it once a month. Every two weeks, uh, once a month, once every other month. Right. So that brings up the the next factor in this. And by the way, all, all these things, like I'm, I'm mostly summarizing your state of the union because you pretty much got everything right in there. Uh, the next point is that, you know, preparing for these shows takes time. Uh, and it's not time that can easily be moved. Uh, it's like, you know, the show is going to come on a certain schedule and that schedule doesn't move too much. Occasionally we've done, you know, on a weekend or something like that. But, uh, you know, a weekly or any sort of regular schedule show, uh, you know, you, you need to, it needs to be done. That date doesn't move. It's like a hard deadline. And the, the burden of the obligation to do that preparation is sort of bounced off by the good feelings of having done a good show and, right. you know, positive, positive feedback from listeners and, and everything. Like, uh, so on the one side of it is it is like, wouldn't it feel good not to have to do a show this week or every week? You know, like, oh boy, that, I, don't, I don't have that homework assignment hanging over my head. And on the flip side of that is, wouldn't it feel bad to not have done a show this week? Because, you know, enjoyment out of doing the show and it's fun to do the show, right? So those two things have always been sort of balancing off each other. And when the relief of not having to do a show starts to surpass the potential regret of not having done the show, mm. that's that's sort of how I'm gauging like when it's time to uh, to you know time to call it quits because always it's been you know a, a burden and pressure to like you know you got to get the show ready show ready but it's a good kind of burden and pressure because it's like oh but I really want to do the show you know and like and those are always in balance and from week to week the the balance shifts depending on how hectic my life is or whatever but I figured when that balance starts to shift where it feels like the, the burden is starting to overwhelm the good feelings about doing the show, then, then that's time to like, you know, and, and Mar as Marco said in his, his blog post about the ending of his show, and you know, as you talked about and build and analyze, it's like, I like the idea of kind of, you know, or as in the Seinfeld episode with uh, George leaving the room on a high note, you always want to try to go out like on top. Right. Like you don't want it to just sort of have like the seasons, you know, six, seven, eight, and nine of X-Files. Is right. that how long it went? I the, think the so. Show, Way too the show, long. Way yeah, too the show long. should have ended after season six. It didn't. It kept going. All right. So I don't want it to be like that. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, like like you said in the State of the Union thing, you know, this is, this is not my job, podcasting. Uh, as many people have, you know, people are surprised to learn that my job is not writing one article a year for Ars Technica. No, right. That, that, that is not a job. And it's also, believe it or not, not doing uh, a one-hour podcast every week. It would be nice if that was a full-time job. And, and if it was a full-time job, I can tell you that the burden of doing one-hour podcast a week is substantially less <laughs> than the burden of going to an actual full-time job. So, right. And by the yeah. way, I mean, you, you're full, you, do not, you do not have the luxury of being one of these folks that works from home. Uh, you, you go into an office. I've seen a picture of you in your office. Oh, it's not even an office. It's, in a, it's a cube. And you go uh, in there. It's not even a cube anymore. It's not even a cube anymore. Wow. No, okay. So, and you, you go into this thing and this is, this is your job and you've made special arrangements this whole time to be at home uh, and, and moving your schedule around so that you could be home on Fridays to record. And who knows how that's uh, cut your career short. 
Come out your right? But, but who yeah, knows? I, who I, knows? Car- I carve out a chunk of time on Friday to be home, but sometimes I have a meeting before the show, and sometimes I have a meeting really after the show, and then I go back. So I'm, I'm, you know, doing a regular nine to five commute. Like that's how I listen to all my podcasts. By the way, I listen right. to them while I'm commuting in my car to my job. Uh, and so, like the normal day is, you know, you go in to work. Well, you know, wake up, get the kids breakfast and everything, uh, get, get them dressed, get them off to school, right, uh, and then go off to work, and then work a full day. And then I come home from work, make dinner and deal with homework and bath and do bedtimes and everything. Uh, and then at that point, uh, yeah, I, I don't meditate like like you do or used to. I don't know if you still do it. You know, I don't know any of that stuff, but I do need some time to unwind. Yeah. And that's usually like after the kids are in bed, I will just plop down on the couch and veg out and watch some TV. Uh, and it used to be in my in my earlier life, both before kids and before, you know, RSI rate kicked in, kicked in, like my unwinding time would also be in front of the computer, but because of RSI, I've like trained myself to do some sort of leisure time activity that does not involve typing. And, you know, sitting in front of the TV is like, it's actual positive reinforcement to say, oh, by sitting in front of the TV, I'm actually doing something healthy for me because I'm not typing and I'm not using a mouse, right? Of course, the iPad makes it. So now I have a new activity that I can do without typing and using a mouse. But anyway, uh, that unwinding time, you know, I need because if you think of my schedule from the moment I wake up from some screaming child to mm-hmm. the, the point where I finally get them off to bed, now that's like my time. And to have to go immediately from uh, getting them into bed to, okay, now I have to do a show prep for four hours uh, and then I'll go to sleep. You know, that that cuts out like either either gives up my, you know, free time entirely for one day a week or partially gives up my free time on multiple days a week, which is usually how it runs. I usually don't do it all at once. Uh, and that's tough. So like that's that's the burden that's balanced off by like, the you know, how much I enjoy the show and everything. Uh, and of course, there's also other podcasts I'm on infrequently. So if I have one of them during the week that cuts out another day, day, night's worth of free time and anything else I might want to do. There's so many things that, you know, I might want to get into or try or, you know, even the, like non-computer related things. Like say I keep using woodworking as an example because I'm not actually into woodworking, but it's a good example. Like say I just wanted to get into woodworking. Well, when am I going to find time to do that? You know, uh, so I I think now is the time both in terms of, uh, you know, subject matter and things I wanted to cover and also like time for me to, you know, cut this out and uh, try something else for a while or give, give, you know, see, see what else there is out there. Like two years is longer than I thought this would go on. I thought it maybe would last a year. Yeah, but that's what you were saying. You, you didn't, you would not even commit to the year thing. I mean, I, no, and no. I was not pressuring you to commit to it. I was just saying like, you were, you were never like, yeah, um, let's do it for a year and see what happens. You were like, I, I may only do one episode. Yeah. Or it could be like a couple months or whatever, but I'm as surprised as anyone that it has gone on uh, two years. It's a testament to how much I've enjoyed doing the show, but now I think it's definitely time. Uh, to stop. And so like, why not do it less frequently? Wouldn't that give you more free time or whatever? It's like, I just want to, you know, just th- th- cut it off entirely. So this is hundred. We're going to be out, even though it's not really a hundred, it's like 98 ish or whatever. And even if we don't make it to a hundred because something happens or whatever, probably, you know, basically through the end of the year, we'll have gone for basically two years. It will be, you know, the end. It's a nice end cutting off. When I think what I'd be leaving behind is a nice body of work, which I'm probably going to talk about on some other show, but not this one. Uh, so I have a few things planned uh, for the last few episodes. Like we're on 95 now. This is 95. So we got uh, five more. Five more. Uh, one show before the end it will be a Q&A show where I will take questions from the chat room. It's not going to be this show. and I'm not sure which show it will be. So if you're listening to this now and you're one of those people who hangs out in the chat room, uh, 
is gonna, I don't know. Do they have sales like this? Like you don't know which show it's going to be. Just be in. The, I would like to say, oh, it's definitely going to be the next show, or it's going to be ninety-seven or something. But I don't know. I don't know when it's going to be. It will it'll probably be the show where I'm least prepared for the show that week, and I'll say, you know what? This week is the Q and A show. So uh, anyway, if you're interested in being in a Q and A show, I'm sorry that I can't tell you ahead of time which show it will be. But on the other hand, it adds elements of excitement and chance. So who knows? Maybe you will be in the chat room. When we do the Q&A show, start thinking of your questions now. There will be no formal process for submitting questions. It will just be chaos because that's what the chat room is about. Chaos. And if no one has questions, then I'll just make Dan make up questions. Yeah, I can do that. Put them on your interviewer hat. Uh, And there'll be no, those questions can be anything. Like they don't have to be about the ending of the show. They could be about anything at all. doesn't mean I'll answer them. doesn't mean I'll have good answers, but you know, really open field. A lot of people have been asking about this as well. Like, why don't you do a show where you take questions from the chat room? So that will happen before the end of the show. That will happen. Yes. Okay. Uh, and the final show, episode 100 or whatever the final show is, uh, I already know what that show will be about. So, and I'm not going to tell you. So you don't you don't need to give me ideas of what I should do for the last show. Nor but but just like with Lost, just like with Lost, you wrote the premiere and the finale at the same time. That's true. Actually, I knew. What, I always knew what the last you show. You always knew. Be about yes. All right. So, do you think I covered that? Is there anything else that we need to talk about? Like I said, I, I, on on the last show, I will do more of a retrospective about the show. That's not what the last show is entirely going to be about. But I don't we'll have wanna, like a like an audio stuff. montage and you know music, not, dramatic music swelling up, and we'll have something. All right. Seems like the chat room is. They're, uh, they are very. By the way, like, just the the sentiment, the overall sentiment. There's a lot of. I know that you. Don't always activate your motion ship, but on, on your behalf, I will say that there are a lot of uh, the, the sent overall overwhelming sentiment is uh, kind of all the stages of sadness, you know, like the denial and disbelief and rejection, anger, all of the people are going through all, including me, are going through all of these things. And uh, I, I just I just want to add and you, you kind of mentioned this, but you cannot be persuaded uh, that's one thing I want to make somewhat clear, right? I mean, it's, is, is it, you can't be persuaded. There's nothing that, that I can do or that other folks can do that would encourage you to continue. For example, we should not start a Kickstarter project. No, no you should not do that. I mean, there's nothing reasonable. Like, you, you know, you in your typical way made every effort to try to make the show not end, but like, there's nothing reasonable you can do. People's like, well, if you were going to get a million dollars an episode, would you stop? No, of course not. If man, if you can give me a million dollars an episode, I will do this show for at least 100 more episodes. But, <laughs> so mean, for a hundred million bucks, you'll exactly. Like, and you know what I mean? Like nothing reasonable, right? There's nothing reasonable. It's not like, you know, it's, it's just, I feel like it's time. And so, if anything, like, and even if like, oh, you know, the million dollars an episode type of thing, like, I would probably. Still <laughs> John feel- Roch in the chat room says, "Yay, he's got a price." <laughs> well, everyone has a price, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, it's not like you're asking to pay me to, you know, uh, you know, eat babies or something. Like, but, would you uh, do that? I would not eat babies no, for any price. No price. Uh, so not. So there are some things that, but it's not. It's not another because I have had people contact me, like independent, just me, not you and me in the contact form, but like me, be like, can we can we help by raising money? I would donate a hundred dollars or what? You yeah. know, like that, just I, that should flatter you, John. People love you. I love you. Yeah. People don't want this show to end. I, I did like a lot of people saying like. uh, 
inspired by Marco's magazine thing. Like, as we talked about this before, like if we if we decide to charge one dollar an episode for the podcast, how many people would pay? And it's like a tiny percentage. But all those people came out of the woodwork when the show was ending and said, "Yeah, I'll pay you a dollar a show." Whatever. Like, that's not. You know, I, I'm I'm fascinated by that from a financial perspective, but I still don't want to keep doing the show. Like, who and who knows? That, this is the other question is like, does this mean you're going to stop doing podcasts? No, I'll still be on the incomparable, for example. But I'm just on that like every once in a while. That's like, an inter, that's an intermittent thing, and it, you that's like voluntary. Like, you know, there's a topic, and they say anyone who wants to talk about blah, you know, you can come on the show. So it's totally up to me when I want to be on that show at all. And you have right? also you have also I don't even want to use the word as strong as indicated. Because that's almost too strong for the borderline acknowledgement slash implication that there might be an agreement to be on, like my other show, The Crossover or Big Week when it premieres. But you you have not ruled that out as something. That, I, I, I have not said I won't be on those shows. You, have not, <laughs> you haven't said that you won't not be on But it'll be exactly like the incomparable. If you're talking about something <laughs> and I feel like talking about it, I'll be on. If I don't feel like it, I won't. Like there's no obligation. Like that's the difference. That's why I'm still doing the incomparable stuff because right. it's not. Is not a burden at all. It's like, oh, if I have to blow it off to go do something, like, you know, so what? Because I never, yeah, I'm never, I'm not going to volunteer myself to be on that show unless it's something I think I want to talk about and I have the time. And if I don't, oh well, you know. And you uh, just also be clear in as in as much as um, as ever, we are we are and will continue to be best best friends, BFFs. Of course, okay. you can still send me your. Uh, one line obscure technical questions by I am <laughs> and then get irate when I don't research them for you and find an answer. <laughs> that has not happened for a long time. It's <laughs> at least several days. That's right. It's definitely new Dan. Oh, and speaking of <laughs> speaking of that, like one, one more thing, like I said this on the hypercritical Twitter account that it's confusing to people and understandably. So uh, this podcast that you're listening to is ending, but hypercritical as a concept lives on. And what does that mean? Well, it means that my blog titled hypercritical, which predates uh, this podcast will continue to exist. Yes. The blog that gets one post a year, that blog, the blog that nobody reads that blog, but anyway, it will continue to exist. And by the way, I have a new URL for that. It's hypercritical.co. It's the same Tumblr site. It always was. But uh, one of the things I'm considering trying is, I don't know if you heard about this thing called, they called web logs, but they shorten it and say blog instead. <laughs> I might, I might try that. And for, not, for the record, know, for the record, one thing you were, you were, in, in as much as I've ever seen you, you were adamant. When we started this show, you said that you had a name for the show and you were very clear that you would, you would, this, this name was yours. It was absolutely, it was yours. It was something you've always wanted to have and use. And that if you did a show, it could only be called hypercritical and that the name and the show as a concept, everything that that was, that that was, yours and and yours alone right so i could in theory do another podcast called hypercritical now i have no plans to do this and it still wouldn't be the same show as this because this show is me and you and if i did another podcast called hypercritical i don't think i would probably ever do that but who knows but it would definitely be different than this one because it would just be a different cast of people maybe it'd be me by myself maybe it'd be with a group of people but anyway i have no plans to do that i'm not talking with anybody about doing another podcast i want to break from podcasting which of course as soon as i say i'm ending this you know people come out of the woodwork and say Oh, you want to do this podcast? I'm like, no, I want a break. You know, yeah. <laughs> chill out, everybody. Just, I need a break. All right. Anyway, maybe, maybe I will regret it. And maybe after three months of not doing a podcast, I will be ready to explode and will want to come you know, and do something else. But anyway, uh, there could very well be another podcast with the title hypercritical in the future. Uh, or well, as I, I think the main thing is that John, and I, I know that everybody, everybody listening to this agrees with me that 
We want more of you. And whenever you're ready, wherever you are, whenever, right. whatever format you decide to deploy yourself in, we are right. ready and we will miss you. Yeah, I, I have a feeling though it'll mostly be sporadic stuff. Like maybe I'll do a couple episodes of some show with some random people. I doubt I have no plans to do any podcast called Hypercritical. But if I do, if I try blogging, my blog will continue to be called Hypercritical. Uh, and if I could ever get hypercritical.com, that would be the URL, but I can't get it. So I still, uh, for the missing M, I've got hypercritical.co. Uh, and I don't know. I think I saw the co from you. Bigweek.co was like the first co domain. I thought, that's eh, just like that com. I love the co M. domain. You're missing the M, that's all. Uh, especially since browsers now are being less... Uh, I think it was Safari still does. You used to be able to type a word and it would try .com and then it would stick on www.com and it would try to find the URL. And now they're being weird about that where they'll do a Google search half the time. But anyway, uh, I still want the .com, but they want too much money, more money for it. So hypercritical will live on. What does that mean to you as podcast fan? Probably not a lot, but you're like, oh, that's great. So you're going to continue to have a Twitter, Twitter account and a blog you post to once a year. I don't care. I still want the podcast. I understand that. Uh, but anyway, that, that's that's what I mean by the, the idea that hypercritical will live on. Uh, but this incarnation of the show will not. I don't know how I would ever navigate that if I ever decided to have, even if I came back to 5x5 five five to do hypercritical again, I would probably call it something different or call it hypercritical 2 or hypercritical phase 2 or I don't know. Like It seems like it, there needs to be some sort of differentiation because you know, as I will talk about on the, the last show probably, I do like what we've done here for over 100 episodes and I sort of want it to, or close to 100 episodes, and I sort of want it to stand alone as a thing. Uh, but the name itself will live on. Um, one one more thing about the things we're going to have in the last show. One of the last shows between now and the last show will have a Syracuse County title. Oh, yes. Which one will it be? I don't know. Ooh. Will has. I get to pick? Will I get to pick the title? Well, that, that, you know what? That... Could be. How about this? I know that's a little too strong. I know that yeah, I'm I'm pushing you past the comfort zone. Could we collaborate on a title? Just collaborate a little, and I'll 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 you be the voice the of the chat. People put in the chat. They put yeah, in the, you the show. De- about you thing. decide the actual title. I I'll always decide the titles. I picked the, the Syracuse County one because you liked it. Yes, even though it wasn't said on the show. But that's that's the input you have. But I'm just saying that one of the titles will be a Syracuse County title. <laughs> and now and crowd. It's a real crowd pleaser, John. And if and if we don't have one up until the last show, I just ha- I have to pick one for the last show. So then all the suggestions would be variations on Syracuse County. So it could it could be this episode that you're listening to now, or it could be the next one or the next one, the next one, or it could be the last one. But that is my plan. As I tweeted, probably. Now I, I would. I this fantastic non Syracuse County titles for every <laughs> single show up until the last one. I don't know. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, and, uh, listen. Everyone's sad. I'm sad. And uh, we'll always, uh, we'll always, uh, we'll always enjoy and cherish the uh, wonderful times we've had making these shows. And uh, let's have a good one right now. Let's do a show now. Why don't we do a show? Oh, okay, let's do it. All right. Why don't I do a sponsor? Good idea. Shutterstock.com. Over twenty million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, video clips. They've got it all. You're looking for a perfect image for your website. Maybe you're making a mobile site. Maybe you're making a responsive site and you want to get a really high resolution image, but maybe you only want to deliver that to the folks with the retina display and you want the retina. They've got the high definition, high quality versions of all of their stuff and it's one price. Okay. You don't, they're not going to nickel and dime you. They're not going to mess around with you like that. International photos in here, John. Because they work with independent photographers and designers all around the world. They add something like 10,000 images 
uh, a week or something crazy like that. 24-hour support during the week. Go check these guys out. The next time you need an image for any purpose or video, shutterstock.com. You don't give them a credit card. You don't need to. Throw stuff in your light box when you're ready to check out. Use the code DANSENTME11 because this is the 11th month or month of 11, as Merlin says. Dan sent me 11 at Shutterstock.com. You will get 30% off. Go check them out. Thanks very much to them for supporting one of these last very important shows. What are we talking about today? Still a whole month to go, you know, Dan. What? All right. Uh, Well, I know there's a whole month to go, but it feels like the end. I'm I'm freaking out. All right. All right. Uh, I have uh, one Black Friday deal that I tweeted. Is it okay to talk about this even though they're not a sponsor? Of course. All right, so this uh, this relates but to Backup Vortex. I think it was like episode two or something of this show about why you should back up. And Crash Plan is having a Black Friday sale uh, where it's one of those sales where the price goes up every couple of hours. So the later you listen to this show, the less likely this deal is to be in place at all. And obviously, if you don't listen to it until... Actually, I think it lasts until Monday. Right now, so, it's 90 96% off on Crash Plan. Right. For the every next- two every two hours, the price will increase up until Monday the twenty sixth at two p.m. Central Time. So right now, I'm going to put this in the show notes. It's uh, crashplan.com/slash/big-sale. Oh, it's already there. Yes. So what does it mean? Ninety six percent off. So, right, so ha- hang on a second. This ain't real. It's real. It's real. It's only for new customers. So that is the. the reason I am I new, could but I am this. new though. All right. So if you are a new customer and you do not currently subscribe to Crash Plan, or if you're willing to try to game the system, there are ways you can try to get it so you can get the steal if you're an existing customer. But that would be slightly dishonest. I did not do that. Anyway. uh, $5.76 for a year? Yeah. All right. So Crash Plan is an online backup service where your computer sends your data over the internet in encrypted form to Crash Plan servers, and you pay them what's normally a monthly or a yearly fee for them to store your data for you so that if your house burns down, you can have crash plan. Uh, you can pull your data back down from crash plan, uh, like Backblaze, which is the other backup service that I use. They have an unlimited backup thing, which means unlimited amount Dude, of data. I'm signing up like, right now. Yeah. It's not like $5 per gigabyte or like you can have up to 10 gigabytes. It's unlimited data and they can afford to do this because most people don't have that much data. But for people like me who have a lot, uh, this is a great deal because I, I love unlimited data. It's like, all right, here comes a terabyte of data. Uh, have fun. Uh, you know, maybe you'll have less than that. Uh, normally, it's about $100 a year or around $5 a month. I don't remember the exact amounts, uh, which I still think is a great deal. If I pay, I have two, uh, I have Backblaze and Crash Plan, and I pay $5 a month to Backblaze, roughly, and $5 a month to Crash Plan. I think I do the yearly deals, but it's similar to that. For different computers, one of my Macs, the Mac I'm sitting in front of now, is backed up with Backblaze, and my wife's Mac is backed up with Crash Plan. And of course, they're both done with also Time Machine and Super Duper. Uh, and I think that's a great deal. $5 a month and they'll store an unlimited amount of data for you. Sure, I'll keep paying that forever. I think it's a great idea that everyone should have it. But people go, oh, I don't want another $5 a month of bill or whatever. Well, so Crash Plan is having this Black Friday deal where you can pay, as of right now, $2.40. Not per month, but for an entire year of they will store all your data, an unlimited amount of your data, whatever you can upload. And granted, this depends on how fast your upload connection is, how long is it going to take you to push all your data up to them, Right. But $2.40 for the entire year, that's 96% off the normal price. Earlier today, it was 100% off. It was completely free. And then it was 98% off and so on and so forth. So I, just, sooner, I just signed up right now. I went for the two to whatever computer plan. Yeah. It's normally 120 bucks a year. I just paid $5.76. 
Right. That's the family plan. They also right. have a plan either from two to 10 computers. If you just want to back up one computer, which is what I pay for, it's one price. And if you just want to back up two to 10 computers, and by the way, you can use with crash plan for free. You can back up your stuff to a friend's computer in a different house to another computer inside your own house, which I don't recommend because the whole point is you're supposed to be getting stuff offsite. Uh, so I, I highly recommend both these types of both these things, Backblaze and crash plan. People keep asking me which one is better. They both have pros and cons. I always say it's pretty much a tie because I, I, I don't like the fact that CrashPlan is written in Java and I can't really gauge the performance because CrashPlan is running on my pure SSD Mac. So if it's grinding my disk, I would never notice because I've got fast SSDs attached to it. Uh, Backblaze is not written in Java and has a native client uh, and has you know never really bothered my disk, but CrashPlan has more features. So it's like, it's you know which one do I prefer? I use them both. I say it's both a tie. They're both cheap to try. Try them both. If you hate one, then try the other one or whatever. But this deal can't be beat. This is especially for people who are like, I don't want to pay $5 a month. You can't turn this down. $2.40 for a whole year. Just do it. It's cheaper than a coffee. And then you could try it. And maybe it stinks. Maybe your upload connection is too slow. And maybe it's annoying. Or maybe the client messes with your computer. Who knows? But it's $2.40. And yeah. really, everyone should have an off-site backup. So when your house burns down, your pictures of your kids are somewhere, it's safe. Belt and suspenders. My visiting guest here in, in the studio... Uh... Sam just also, I think, is signing up for it. Yeah, she, I told, it's a cup of coffee. I told everyone, I, I told my sister to sign up. I called my brother to have him <laughs> sign up for it because these are people who like haven't been willing to pay $5. It seems like too geeky thing. I tried to get my mother, she, my parents are <laughs> visiting, tried to get her to do it. She says, it's just one more thing for me to learn. But thankfully, due to the magic of Dropbox, she doesn't really have any data that's not that's actually on her computer. If her computer fell into a lake, uh, she would be fine. She doesn't store photos on it or anything. And, and all of her important stuff is already in cloud stuff but anyway if i could if i could convince her to get this deal i would so for people who are listening live this is what you get a reminder that you can now get an amazing deal on this and when the year is up you will have to uh if you want it to keep going after a year you'll have to pay the full price like this doesn't last forever it's just it's just the cheap price for one year i don't know if it auto renews or not or if you have to remember to cancel it i'm pretty sure it doesn't auto renew i'm pretty sure when your year starts coming up they'll start sending you emails saying hey your thing's about to expire in a year. If you want to continue to have your backup, you should really start paying. And at that point, I would say, yes, you should really start paying because you put in the time to upload your however many gigabytes of data, just pay $5 a month. It's worth it for the peace of mind. If you have data that you would be sad if it disappeared, like, you know, if you have more data than fits on like a Dropbox account that you're already using, you don't have a cloud backup strategy and you have pictures of your kids, really, you should do some sort of offsite backup. Now, someone in the chat room says you can check a box to either auto-renew or not auto-renew when you sign up. So there you go. I, I unchecked it because I may not like it by then. There you go. So you, when you sign up, you can choose whether you want to. No, you're not. So that, that was the free ad for Crash Plan. But really, that's, that's an amazing deal. Like it's, you know, because it costs them money. To, it's not like, oh, well, yeah, sure, they give it to us for free, but it doesn't cost them anything. It does. They have to store your data. Like they have to keep your data on a series of hard drives and whatever crazy storage thing they use. You are costing them money and they're basically giving it away for free for an entire year in the hopes that you will come to like it and then pay them, you know, $5 a month after that. All and right. you said you, you said you can send them a hard drive? Uh, I don't know. I have never done that. I believe you can. Most of these services have a way. I, I would never do that because I have really fast internet connection. Unfortunately, a lot of, like, my internet connection has, what is it, like 35 megabits up, which is not as fast as Marco's. Uh, crazy expensive one uh, because I think 35 is enough for me. But I most of these services cannot accept 35 megabits per second upload. Like they don't saturate my upload pipe when I'm uploaded to them, which is kind of a shame. But you know, at least I can my connection can peak to whatever they're able to handle. It really depends on how far you are from their data center and stuff like that. 
because some people would say they have gotten much better speeds than me on both back backblaze and crash band but from my location i get you know five ten megabits per second maybe i've I don't think I've ever seen higher than 10 megabits up for these things. but uh, So it does take a long time to upload your data. But yeah, you, if you were impatient, you could send them a hard drive. But I am not impatient because I have 8 million other backups. All right, back to some more traditional follow-up. On the last show, we talked about ARM versus Intel uh, and Apple's use of uh, same in their Macs. I uh, was talking about Intel's market cap and the fact that Apple has... Uh, probably enough cash to buy Intel if it wanted to, despite the fact that's probably a silly idea and antitrust and blah, blah, blah. And at the time I read Intel's market cap, uh, people in the chat room were, were saying Intel's not worth $1 billion. They don't have a $1 billion market cap. And I ignored them because I said, those people must have misheard me because I have here in my notes written the exact market cap of Intel and I just read it. So Normally, when people say something in the chat room, I'm like, oh, did I say that? I'll correct myself. But I'm like, no, I didn't say $1 billion. I'm staring at the number as I spoke the words about their market cap. Well, when I went back and listened to the episode, I'm, I'm staring at, in my notes, the number 104.22 and then a capital B. And what I actually said was 1.4. Ah. So I apologize. <laughs> my inability to read numbers off of my show notes continues $104.22 billion is Intel's market cap. Everything else still stands. Apple does have about $100 billion, you know, in cash and long-term securities, blah, blah, blah. Like, not that, you know. Anyway, it's not outside the realm of possibility that Apple could buy Intel, financially speaking. You know, from a regulatory perspective and from a sanity perspective and from whether Apple would ever even want Intel, that's a whole other deal. But I was just pointing out that what a crazy world we live in where that that is even financially feasible. Um and I think I read in Apple's market cap correctly. It's like five hundred billion or something like that, and has been at various times much higher. Uh, so I apologize to the chat room. I will never doubt you again, <laughs> and I will never trust my ability to read numbers off my show notes. Uh, one more thing, which I am aware that I do all the time, but it's difficult, is silicon versus silicone. Silicon is, you know, the thing that uh, chips are made out of, and silicone is a rubber synthetic polymer thing that I like to use for cases for my iPod touches and stuff. The only difference is a little E at the end, but it makes very big difference in terms of material. So when talking about chips last episode at various times, I said silicone and still silicon. Anytime I'm talking about chips, I'm trying to say silicon. Occasionally my mouth says silicone. So I apologize for that. Slight difference. Yes. Uh, this is a, a way back follow-up about uh, Fusion Drive, which talked about Apple's way to combine a SSD and, and a hard drive into one logical volume that has really good performance characteristics. Many people have been complaining about the fact that during testing, it seems that when you do like a write to uh, uh, or you do anything with a Fusion Drive, if the spinning part of the Fusion Drive is asleep, it will spin up. Uh, which seems like a shame because people are like, oh, well, what if I'm just doing stuff with the SSD? What if I'm only reading and writing files that are totally residing in the SSD? And of course, Fusion does all its writes initially to the SSD and then may send them to the hard disk later. But apparently when you do anything to a Fusion drive, like the logical c- combination of the SSD and the, and the spinning disk, if the spinning disk is asleep, it will wake up. Even if it's, you're not going to do anything with it, even if you're not going to put any data over to it, not going to read any data from it, it just spins up. I'm not sure why that is. It may just be a weird implementation thing that or maybe it makes sense from the perspective of if you have to write something to if by the time you have to write something to it, you don't want to decide then to spin the drive up because then you're going to have this big delay. Better to just spin the drive up all the time. 
I don't think this is that big a deal because my spinning drive is up all the time now anyway because it's my boot drive and it never goes to sleep, right? I have my discs set to go to sleep when they're not in use, but I basically unmount the ones that are in use. And so all my drives are spinning all the time. So uh, I don't think this is a big deal for me. But for people who had been doing the sort of manual fusion drive where they, through a series of sim links, put like the only the files they want on the SSD and the other files on the spinning disk, this is a downgrade for them because it used to be with the sim link thing, if you never touched anything on the spinning drive, uh, you would always, uh, it, w- it wouldn't spin up. It would just go to sleep and stay asleep. Uh, so I'll be watching that to see how annoying it is when I get, in, in 2013, when I get my Mac Pro, it ships by default with the fusion drive. Fingers crossed. I'll see how annoying that is. But I just wanted to point that out. Phil Blackwell is the person who brought that to my attention just before the show. Although I've seen many people complaining about it. All right. Uh, in fact, the, the, main, the main part of the show is going to be follow up on ARM versus Apple stuff. So just to prepare everybody, this, this is going to be like a full follow up show and I have one minor topic at the end of it if we get to it. Uh, so moving on to that follow up, this is from Aaron Rosenblum talking about uh, CISC versus RISC on the, on the past show. Yes, yeah, the past show where you went into great detail and uh, we all learned a lot more maybe than we were expecting to about risk. About life and love. Life and love and the journey that we're all on together until the Mayans prophecy comes to pass. Yeah, a lot of people said, boy, I wish, you know, I I wish that that John was my college professor to teach me about these things and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Anyone who actually knows about these topics or learned about them in a formal setting knows all the things that I, you know, oversimplified in in that discussion and all the things that like, were, you know, the analogy with the sewing machine and stuff like that. The reason you enjoy that podcast more than a college course is because the college course is actually rigorous and correct. And so I would encourage everybody not to think like, now I've learned everything there is to know about risk and CISC. No, you didn't. I like I gave, like I said, the Cliff Notes version. If you read, if you read the Cliff Notes version of a novel, you didn't read the novel. Like there really is a lot to know and understand here. I was trying to give like a, you know, sort of, all right, you, assuming you don't actually want to understand the details of this because you're like, I'm not that interested, but just give me sort of the gist of it. I think I gave the gist of it, but you know, as someone who has gone through this in a formal way, listening to my own show, I'm like, oh geez, like, no, that's not really right. Oh, that's not quite, oh, you know, but so it should be more fun to listen to the college, uh, you know, course because it's not as good as a college course. It's not as informative. It's not as accurate as a college course. So, uh, anyone who really is interested in this stuff, it's not that much more difficult than what I explained, but there are lots and lots of details and it's actually kind of fun to, uh, pick whatever level you think is the lowest level that you're interested in. Like say you're not interested in physics. I don't care about what the subatomic particles are doing inside my computer. Right. I don't want to learn about that because it's really complicated and it is, it's really complicated and it gets really crazy when you get down into physics and stuff like that. Just say, okay, I'm going to assume there's something called an AND gate and OR gate and an AND gate or whatever. Right. I don't know how they work inside. I don't have to know. All I have to know is this is how they work electrically. Right. You can start from there and understand like Boolean logic and go through that and work your way up to understanding how a modern computer works. And it's not really that complicated. It's, there's nothing mind bending in it. Or at least, you know, there's nothing, that I found as challenging as advanced mathematics or physics. It's really something that let's go with the woodworking again. It's no more complicated than woodworking. You can learn how a modern computer works starting from the gate level, uh, ignoring everything below that and working your way up from first principles. Anybody can learn that. And it's actually interesting and fascinating. It will give you insight into how computers work, believe it or not. That's why I feel bad for the people who have CS degrees where they don't actually learn how the machine works. Uh, it's not like I'm bemoaning the fact that they learn Java and they should be learning assembly and not that, but like, 
I think it's very interesting and how we how we built our way up from the first guy who builds a transistor all the way up to the computers we have today. And I think any person can actually walk that path and learn that stuff. So go get some college textbooks and start from first principles. And you can get there all on your own. Like you don't need a professor to teach it to you or anything. It's really very straightforward stuff. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> that sidebar. And Rosenblum says uh, uh, Rosenblum uh, points out something that I forgot to talk about uh, in my th- in my uh, talk about risk and CISC was that uh, when these CISC CPUs were conceived, you know they weren't called CISC back then; they were just called CPUs. But anyway, when they were <laughs> conceived, the cost of memory was tremendous. I mean, the original Mac had 128 kilobytes of memory, and it's not because they were stingy; it's because memory just cost a huge amount of money, right? Uh, and the advantage of a CISC program in that environment is it can be shorter. You just need one instruction to do, you know, move uh, data from memory address to another memory address. You don't need two instructions to do that. And one instruction takes up less room than two instructions. And so CISC, by having a single instruction that, the, that will, you know, tell the CPU to do a complicated operation, makes your program smaller. And smaller programs means less memory on disk, means less memory to, you know, store and run them. Uh, and also, this is another thing we'll get to later in, in the, uh, the follow-up slash topic here. Uh, variable length instructions. We'll talk about an x86 where certain instructions are shorter than other instructions as opposed to the risk philosophy. So we just make all of our instructions exactly the same size. We can build all our machinery to just not deal with, you know, it's much easier. We can just pull, you know, 32-bit instruction after 32-bit instruction. You know exactly where each instruction begins and ends and your decoding hardware can be simpler. And, you know, it's much easier than uh, a variable length instruction stream. But Variable-like instructions, like an x86, are kind of a simple form of instruction stream compression. Because, you know, you'd presume that the most common instructions will be the shortest, and then the more obscure instructions will be longer, and now you're basically, you know, compressing your instruction stream. Which, even in the case where memory doesn't cost a lot, is good for, for uh, you know, bandwidth and stuff like that. Uh, so thanks, Aaron, for reminding about the, the relationship between CISC and memory usage. Uh, one more on the, uh, well... Many more on the Apple Arm thing, but this one is, this is, this one <laughs> is like, a weird this one. This is created. I mean, were you expecting this much feedback, John? Yes, I, oh. I thought I might have an entire separate <laughs> second show on it. And so here, <laughs> and so here we are. Uh, but this one is more of a, uh, is this traditional follow-up or non-traditional? Anyway, we talked about sticky tape because I gave a link to the uh, YouTube clips of The Secret Life of Machines, which is a British show. Yes. In particular, the episode where they show you how a sewing machine works. Uh and I said that the show was memorable to me from when I was a kid because I said sticky tape, which I thought was charming and strange from an American perspective. Uh, but I am informed by many people, including David Wright, that the British people do not call it sticky tape either. They call it cello tape. And cello tape is the name brand, kind of like scotch tape here in the U.S. So on TV, they didn't want to call it cello tape. Like when they say, here, I have a cola instead of saying a Coke and they got the can covered or whatever. Well, so they didn't want to call it sticky tape. Uh, they didn't want to call it cello tape. So they called it sticky tape instead. Uh, and he says on one BBC TV show, they called it sticky back plastic, which met with universal derision and mockery. And, and he says, I think people assumed it was an Americanism. Nope, it is not an Americanism. No one here says sticky back plastic. Uh, so here we are both assuming we have crazy ways to say things. But then with further discussion, this was on app.net. We came down with this consensus from the few people that replied. In the UK, they call it cello tape, S-E-L-L-O-T-A-P-E. In the US, it's called scotch tape. Both those are name brand. And Australia, apparently, they do really call it sticky tape. I don't know why. So I'm hesitant to ask for any further clarification if I'm getting this wrong. But the consensus on app.net was 
UK cello tape, US scotch tape, Australia sticky tape. And there you go, more than you ever wanted to know about clear plastic tape. Uh, all right. Uh, one other thing on Apple and ARM. One more thing on Apple and ARM. A couple people pointed this out and didn't save the names. What if Apple switched to ARM and it's Macs? What happens to Boot Camp? Right. Boot Camp is the thing that lets you reboot your Mac into Windows as if it was just a PC. Not, no emulation. not emulation. Just You're just accessing yeah. the CPU and they provide drivers and a special boot partition and that kind of good stuff. Yeah, it just looks like a PC as far as Windows is concerned. Uh, and I love Boot Camp as a Mac uh, user and a gamer because that means I have complete access to every Windows game that I want because there's no issues whatsoever. It's just I happen to be using a PC with with a weird looking case and all the Windows games run great on it. Well, if you switch to ARM, Boot Camp goes away except for the fact that Microsoft has ported Windows to ARM with Windows RT. So there's, you know, like, well, what if, by the time this happens, maybe, you know, Windows RT becomes the dominant form of Windows and game developers for making games for Windows start targeting Windows RT. But there are a lot of complaints from game makers about Windows 8 uh, and how it, friendly it is to writing games for PCs. And I don't know if PC game makers are going to be wholeheartedly embracing Windows RT and running an ARM. But from the current perspective, uh, yeah, if you were, if they, uh, Apple's to go with ARM boot camp as we currently know it, the ability to run Windows for x86 and all the games that run on Windows for x86, that would go away. And that would be sad. I mean, yes, you can you can do emulation in the same way that we used to do emulation with a virtual PC, but emulation is super slow and really not tenable for games at all, uh, which is a shame. So I would be sad to see that go on. That should have been mentioned on the, on the past show. All right, now we get into the meat of Apple versus ARM, uh, and a lot of it is relating to you know my assessment of Intel and where they are with respect to ARM and CPU race and stuff like that. So this is from let's see how I do here, uh, Maurits Norland. He's got some information about Intel. He says Apple is so large today that Intel doesn't have the fab space for them. Uh, Apple would uh, need a whole new 22 nanometer fab just for themselves. We're talking about 50 to 80,000 uh, 22 nanometer wafer starts per month. Uh, so they're saying that uh, if uh, Apple wanted Intel to fab all their CPUs for them, all their ARM CPUs, like uh, Intel couldn't do it. They would say, Intel, can you please, you know, fab every single CPU that we have in all our iPod touches, all our iPhones and all our iPads. Uh, Intel wouldn't have the capacity even if they were willing to do it. Uh, and the fun thing is, he says, Intel will have lots of empty space if they don't just just don't do anything because last year x86 lost 25% market share to ARM. It's just hidden because they don't count tablets as computers. Uh, he points out that the average selling price of an iPad today is higher than the average selling price of a PC. So it's kind of silly to say, okay, well, you know, Intel is the leading uh, PC CPU maker, but that's just because iPads don't count as PCs. And this is an ongoing thing with how do how do you count iPads in terms of market share and stuff like that and uh, I, that's that's a uh, a mess for all of the people who release those reports about who's got what market share of what market. Uh, like, I don't know. Uh, that will sort itself out. It really has nothing to do with the reality of the situation. The reality of the situation is that Apple is selling tons and tons of devices with ARM CPUs and a much, much smaller number of devices with Intel CPUs. Uh, and even if Apple could get our, uh, Intel to fab all of its ARM CPUs, Intel couldn't do it because it doesn't have the capacity. This according to Maritz. Uh, my addition to this is that Apple needs a, a really beefy GPU for like for its retina displays and and for all you know Mac OS X's GUI is powered by OpenGL and all that stuff, right? 
And for many, many years, Intel's integrated GPUs were really crappy. The integrated GPU is the GPU they put now currently on die with the CPU because they've got so many transistors. They need something to use them on. And they said, well, we can put the GPU right on die. It's, and it's, you know, much more economical and, and faster and better. But they were putting crappy GPUs on, on their uh, CPUs. So Intel for years has been pressuring, or Apple for years has been pressuring Intel to make better integrated GPUs. They wanted Intel to put a really good world-class uh, GPU on, on the CPU die. And if you remember all those years of Apple shipping things like, well, we've got a crappy GPU on the CPU, but we, then we've got a discrete GPU from NVIDIA or whoever, you know, on laptops and stuff like that. And Apple did this crazy thing where we would switch between GPUs, and that's really kind of hacky and problematic. And they said, well, when you do something fancy like or play a game or something, we'll use the really powerful discrete GPU. But when you're just scrolling a window, we'll try to use the integrated one. That's a big mess. Apple would really like to simplify that. Now, Intel's HD graphics 4000 that are on the current line of Retina MacBook Pro 15 inch and 13 inch, that integrated GPU can barely handle the 15 inch Retina display, right. especially at this, the higher than native resolution modes, like where you can tell the, you can tell a, a Retina MacBook Pro to pretend it has a 1920 by 1200 screen. And what it actually does is it renders everything into a 3,840 by uh, 2,400 pixel thing that's too big for, for the, the actual native LCD to display. And then it scales that image down and shows it on the display. Uh, but so every, everything in the GPU, it thinks it's handling like a, you know, a screen that's, a, that's almost 4,000 pixels wide. And the GPU is just, can just barely squeak by being able to handle that. It, it kind of chokes and stutters occasionally doing something simple as scrolling. Like it, it's acceptable, it's okay, but it's just really at the limits of what uh, Intel's latest and greatest integrated GPU can handle. And so uh, upcoming integrated uh, Intel GPUs will be much more powerful. And one of the features they're likely to have at Apple's behest is uh, integrated DRAM, like dedicated RAM. And <laughs> you believe they're putting RAM onto the CPU, which is, yeah. Sounds crazy, but you know, hey, you got a lot of you got a lot of transistors. So they've got the CPU on the CPU die. They've got the GPU on the CPU die, and they're also going to have some amount, some small amount of RAM, like you know, sixty four or hundred twenty eight megs, dedicated just for the GPU. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, but this this is the kind of thing that uh, that Apple wants from Intel. Uh, back to Maritz, uh, he says that Apple started talking to AMD. Uh, a while back because AMD has better GPU because of course they bought ATI and so they got the whole Radeon line or whatever and the reason Apple was talking to AMD uh, according to Maritz is like Intel is not giving them the GPUs they want and like well you know AMD has great GPUs but AMD can't supply Apple with the, the CPUs that it needs it doesn't have the foundry capacity uh, so right now according to Maritz Apple is looking for a way out from Intel's monopoly grip and Intel knows it that's why they're subsidizing the ultrabooks and all that other stuff where they're you know Intel is encouraging PC makers to basically make MacBook Air clones which is not making their partner Apple particularly happy and yeah there's this trouble in paradise as we talked about last time. <laughs> uh, and so is this the last one yeah so finally here's a big piece of follow up the best kind of follow up which is anonymous follow up got to love the anonymous follow up uh, so Anonymous writes uh, that Intel just doubled the size of its brand new D1X fab in Oregon. So there's a link in the show notes in, the, in uh, some Oregon uh, local website talking about this. Uh, and Anonymous says that he's heard that other fab locations, including fab 42 and Chandler, are expected to have big expansions. Uh, and by the way, both D1X and Fab 42, I love these names. It sounds like they're yeah. like code names of bases in a video game. Right? <laughs> these are real things. 
both D1X and Feb 42 are 14 nanometers. So this is how this is how the, the game works in Intel World. We talked about how they're at 22 nanometer and they're fabbing full size, complicated CPUs at 22 nanometer. Other people are not like Apple's uh, ARM chips are 32 nanometer. The way you have to do it is while you're fabbing things 22 nanometer, they have to be building and preparing the fabs for the next size. And the next size is 14 nanometer. So that's how they stay a generation ahead. If they're always a generation ahead and no one can no one can skip a generation, if if the people who are currently fabbing at 32 nanometers can't immediately jump to 14, they're going to have to jump to 22 and Intel will be jumping to 14. So D1X and Fab42 are 14 nanometers. Uh, given this info, I can only guess that Intel is hedging its bets a little in the case where the market moves too quickly from x86 and that it can play a role similar to Samsung where it fabs for everyone but still designs and sells its own core IP. So uh, this anonymous a person is saying that the vast expansions of these fabs at 14 nanometers are kind of a hedge against like, okay, well, if the market totally moves to ARM and like nobody buys x86 CPUs anymore, like everything is tablets and ARM, at the very least, Intel will be positioned to say, okay, we have tremendous fab capacity at 14 nanometers. Uh, we will fab your ARM chips for you because we know you guys can't vote fab at 14 nanometers. You guys are just sorting out 22 or whatever, right? So that's a hedge there. Uh, and as Anonymous uh, says, this is not an ideal scenario. You give up a lot in profit when you're just a fab, but it would get Intel into the phone market pretty quickly. Uh, and it would continue to feed it capital to spend on manufacturing R&D. So just in, with fab capacity alone, it would give it enough revenue to just continue to stay a generation ahead in process, right? That's not a great future for Intel. They just become the world's best fab uh, and that's it. But it's a future, I guess. Uh, and by the way, Intel does have CPUs and phones. A lot of people sent me this link to the latest Motorola Razor that has an Intel CPU, which is not terribly embarrassing. Uh, it's fine, right? But they still got a long way to go to catch up in terms of sales uh, with uh, the ARM stuff. Uh, and uh, according to Anonymous, there are rumors that Intel will be fabbing the A7. We talked about this in the last show. I yeah. didn't even know there were actually rumors. Uh, but just rumors. You were, you were discussing this without knowledge of the potential that there were rumors. You were saying, would, would they do this? Could they do this? Right. And so, again, Apple, uh, Intel doesn't really want to be in the business of fabbing other people's CPU designs. It's much more profitable when you can sell the CPUs yourselves. Like the, the, the profit margins when they sell their own CPUs are huge, especially when they're, you know, when they've already ramped up and everything. And the profit margins of being someone else's fab are not great. That's another reason, by the way, why Apple would want to go to ARM is because they don't have to pay for someone else's profit margins. Like, you know, they, they you give up, you know, 10, 20 percent to the person who's fabbing the chips instead of giving up like 80 percent of the price of an Intel CPU. Like that's 80 percent profit for uh, Intel to make their CPUs. It's sort of the, you know, when they're really going and cranking these things out, it does not cost that much to make one of these. It's all upfront cost to make the fab and everything. But once it gets cranking, you can especially like on the Xeon parts and everything where there's just huge profit margins on those chips. Whereas if you're fabbing in your own design, you're never going to give someone who's a fab, you know, 80% of your, you know, maybe Intel could charge higher profit margins, but you could say, who else are you going to go for for 14 nanometer fabbing in, in 2013? We're the only game in town, right? So I don't know. So that's an interesting rumor. I would I would love to see that happen. That would just be, uh, what a strange world we would live in if the A7 comes out and Intel is fabbing it at 14 nanometer and every other phone in the market is not fabbed by Intel and it's a 22 nanometer. That would be uh, quite a competitive advantage for Apple. Anonymous continues. So uh, Pat Gelsinger, when he was still at Intel, said there was a lot of friction between Intel and Apple when they first started working together. And at one meeting, an Apple rep told him that in order to keep Apple as a customer, Intel needs to just say yes, meaning they didn't want to hear about technical challenges or costs involved, that Intel would just have to do what Apple wanted. Uh, given Apple's size and market share at the time, this was a pretty tough pill to swallow. Like this was back, what, 2005 or something when Apple went Intel? And Apple was not the powerhouse that it is now. Like this pre-iPhone, you know, pre, it was post-iPod, but still it was like, 
all right, Apple, we like you as a prestige brand, but don't get too cocky. And Apple's just like, no, you just got to do exactly what we say. So constant tension from, from Go because Apple wants things a certain way and Intel's like, all right, that's right. Why don't you just take the CPUs we have? They're really awesome, Apple. Don't tell us how to do our business, but Apple had specific demands, right? Uh, so uh, continuing from Anonymous, Intel saw the leadership products that Apple was building and went with them. Uh, and the point of this is that... Uh, accommodating a, 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 a demanding customer can actually be financially rewarding because to the degree that Intel has bent to Apple's will, they've had successful products and a lot of prestige and increased sales and stuff. Uh, so Anonymous says that there are entire CPUs that Intel is currently building at Apple's behest. Apple's much more powerful now, obviously, and Intel does want to keep their business if they can. Uh, you'll see one on the market next year called Crystal Well. There's some links in the show notes about Crystal Well. I think Crystal Well is just the name for the embedded DRAM in the GPU. Uh, basically, the idea that a- Apple said, we want way more powerful GPUs. So Haswell, the next line of in- Intel's microarchitecture, will have much more powerful GPUs than the Ivy Bridge ones do. Uh, and also, Apple has apparently specifically demanded they want embedded DRAM on the GPU. Uh, and the reason they want that is because that's kind of the equivalent of the memory of the VRAM that's on your video, video card and a big dedicated uh, card. Uh, rather than using main memory for graphics, you want a separate bank of memory. Maybe it's not that big. And here it's going to be like maybe 64 or 120 megabytes. But it'll have huge bandwidth because it's right on die next to the thing. I think they said that the bus will be like 512 bits wide, five, a 512 bit memory bus. And that's stuff like that is not uncommon in dedicated video cards. So they always have the GPU itself and then the VRAM on the card right next to it, a tremendously wide bus between the VRAM and the GPU. Well, this is the shrunken equivalent of that. You've got your on-die GPU on the same die as as the CPU, and it's got its own bank of dedicated memory that's physically close to it, like, you know, millimeters away, right? And with a huge wide bus that it would be tremendously expensive to make an on-motherboard 512-bit wide bus to RAM. Uh, I don't think anyone does that except for maybe supercomputers or something. So uh, they want a little pool of really fat RAM because I think they can use that to really boost their uh, GPU potential. So... This is something that Intel is doing for Apple. Haswell itself, well, I should have put these in the show notes. There's a really good Nanotech series on Haswell that I should have put in last week's show notes, uh, but many people reminded me about, and I once again forgot to put it in this week's show notes, to show how uh, Intel is trying to make Haswell scale down to lower power dissipations. Like they're trying to attack ARM from below with like Atom and stuff and from above with Haswell and trying to kind of meet in the middle. All right, more from Anonymous. Uh, so lastly, you talked about how the cost of x86 is, is insignificant in big cores, but still a large part of any potentially smaller CPU like this existing Atom. Uh, he says that ignoring L2 cache and uncore, which is includes L3 cache, basically parts that are just cache and not part of the core itself. The x86 tax comes in between 3 and 5% of a uh, core's area and power. So like I said, you know, the, the x86 burden... As the number of transistors increases, percentage-wise starts to go down to where it's it's still there. Three to five percent is significant, but then again, if Intel's fabbing them at a generation ahead of everyone else, they can quickly erase that. Uh, and Anonymous says the reason for this is there are all kinds of microarchitectural tricks that you can play to reuse resources used by the modern parts of the instruction set with a little microcode. Slower instructions are stored in firmware, thrown in for, in the front end to handle the older parts of the instruction set. So I mentioned. Uh, SSE in the last show, streaming SIMD extensions as the expected way of doing flowing point. Uh, I, neg- I neglected to mention that AVX has since not Alien versus, but AVX is what? Alien versus Avenger- Predator. Oh, Avengers, Avengers versus X-Men. X-Men. Yes, I keep hearing Merlin saying AVX and yeah. he has remapped it in my head. Congratulations, <laughs> Merlin. Uh, 
AVX is the current standard that Intel wants everyone to, the most modern standard that wants, Intel wants everyone to use for uh, vector and floating point instructions. But uh, the point here is that there aren't separate parts of the chip for the x87 stack-based floating point, SSC, and AVX. They're all handled by the same hardware, and they just use microcode, which is like little miniature programs, you know, little miniature pieces of software programs to automate the hardware to do the, the older, crappier instructions. So they don't have to make a separate x87 unit and a separate unit for SSC1, SSC2, SSC3, SSC4, and AVX. They make one extremely capable piece of hardware that will sort of natively implement the instructions they want it to do, probably the later versions of SSC and AVX. And if you give it an x87 instruction, it will go to the, the microcode and say, okay, well, I know how to do this one. It's just like a series of this, that, and the other thing, and we'll figure it out. So they don't have to duplicate the hardware, but there is some cost to uh, supporting those things. Uh, but by by having a single piece of hardware support them all and just have the older, slower ones supported in a more crappy manner, they save on die space. Uh, he says that the cost on the Atom, which is Intel's smaller line of x86 uh, compatible CPUs, the cost of x86 compatibility is significantly higher because the chips just have fewer you know, transistors in there, much smaller chips. So he pegs at it around 30%. Uh, and maybe if you took out some of the the uglier of the x86 features, you could trim that down. But that, that you know, that shows the contrast from real numbers from someone who has the possibility of knowing here that uh, the x86 tax, 3 to 5% in a big desktop CPU. But when you get down into small ones, it becomes like 30% and that's a problem. Uh, but he also points out, as he just did, the ability of x86 to have differently sized instruction actually ends up being a feature in terms of power Common instructions are really short, which compresses the code stream versus risks fix, fixed width instructions. And of course, there are fewer of those instructions. Uh, it's and he, he says it's possible that CISC, the you know the CISC instruction set design, gives Intel a fifteen percent performance per watt advantage, at least in terms of feeding the front end. Uh, obviously, you give back some of that in terms of how much you have to do to decode that stuff and track it or whatever. Uh, and it's not really clear whether this fifteen percent number incorporates. Uh, is incorporated into that three to five percent x86 tax calculation. Like, is that the tax before or after the supposedly performance brought benefit? But anyway, uh, this is why the details matter because when you get down to the nitty gritty, we're not talking about conceptually speaking is risk better than Cisco or whatever. We're talking about a particular instruction set with a particular characteristics that you can measure. Uh, so when it comes to making mobile CPUs, x86 seems like it's a big problem, but it does have a few things that are actually advantages. So it's kind of like. What if Intel made a mobile x86 chip that didn't support a whole bunch of the legacy x86 cruft that no compiler should be emitting anyway, and but but was still a sys construction set and got that you know performance per watt advantage of having a very small instruction stream and not having to fetch that much from memory and all that. It's, it's a fascinating idea of having a tiny, not really x86, but almost x86, like like a modern x86 CPU that isn't completely backward compatible with like DOS from 1985. Uh, but does run all modern compiled Intel programs and is actually ha- has performance advantages over something like ARM. Uh, I'm, that may be going too far because ARM has many other... ARM has like no legacy craft and it's totally designed for low power. We'll see. Uh, and he adds that segmented memory is actually the worst part of the x86 burden. Uh, if you had to pick one thing to ditch, it would be segmented memory. Segmented memory is where instead of having memory addresses just be the address, you'd say, oh, I have... We'll set the segment to this, and then we'll have a tiny offset within that segment. And if we want to access something in a different segment, we set the segment offset to something different, and then we use these other small numbers. So, like the, the memory addresses would be relative to a, to the segment number, and that that just complicates CPU stuff. And it was made for an age when 
memory was more constrained and it's, it's very gross. So if, if we if we get rid of one, the worst thing about x86 burden is just get rid of segmented memory support, which nobody uses these days. And it's, well, I don't want to say nobody because some person is going to say that some supercomputing thing still uses it, but uh, it could go away and it wouldn't be a big problem. Uh, a final point from Anonymous, Intel's lead in process, you know, the, the size they can fab things at, is currently only for client CPUs. That means, you know, like traditional CPUs that are in your Macs and stuff. There is a separate low-power manufacturing process for systems on a chip. That's what Apple uses. They're not using like little ARM CPUs. They use what they call system on a chip, where it's one chip, where one corner of the chip, there's the little ARM CPU, and then there's the GPU cores over there, and then there's interfaces for like, you know, I don't know if they have, they don't have the cellular stuff on there yet, but they have, you know, all the peripheral interfaces, whatever they can, as much stuff as they can show onto a single chip, they do. That's why they call it an entire system on a chip, IO interfaces, the, you know, everything all on one chip. Because if you can get everything in your entire phone or your entire whatever, your entire game console, whatever, onto one chip, it becomes much cheaper, lower power. You know, it's much better to have a system on a chip than to have a separate CPU and then a separate GPU chip and, you know, all separate little black squares with little metal contacts on. That is terrible in terms of size, power, everything. You want it to be all combined. So Intel's process lead, where I keep saying Intel is the head in process technology, their head for main, their client CPUs. They do make system-on-a-chip stuff, but they're, they're currently lagging on uh, process. Mostly because Intel is not prioritizing those, and I'm sure they're probably shifting their priorities at this point to yeah. say, okay, we can't just give the system-on-a-chip guys the crappy process now. So that's, that's something to watch. Someone in the chat room put a, an article from 2011 about yeah. Intel fabbing ARM for Apple. Maybe I'll put that in the show notes. Put that in, and I'll do our second sponsor. Hover.com, Simplified Domain Management. These guys are great. I mean, I've already told you how easy it is to register a domain. If you've listened to the show, you've heard me talk about them. I've talked about their like free domain transfer valet service because transferring domains can be a pain. They do all that. They get out of your way. They make it an incredibly simple, straightforward, easy process to register a domain name. That's what they're about. And I really love these folks. They're really good folks over there. They do all the regular .com.net. You mentioned the CO at the beginning of the show for hypercritical.co. They do that. They do the TV. But one of the other things that's really cool I haven't talked that much about is they have DNS management built in. And they do it in a very cool course. They do it in a very cool, easy, elegant way. They make it super easy. A lot of the time, people will use DNS with their hosting company or they'll do DNS with a, a third party. And there are good third-party services out there. But these days, I'm doing everything with Hover. When I register the domain there, I keep the DNS there as well because it's so easy to have it in one place. I can manage all the domains and you just get in there, edit in the form, and you're done. Uh, they make it super easy to do all of this kind of stuff. And they even do email hosting if you don't want to use like Google Apps or a host to do it they can do that. Of course, you pay for it, but it's very affordable. So you can, in fact, speaking of paying for things, you can use the code Dan sent me. It's 10% off everything you do. You use it over and over and over again. Every domain, every transfer for the email hosting, you name it. Dan sent me is the code to use 10% off. Just go to hover.com slash Dan sent me and you will help support the show. Even though it's going away, you can still send us out with a bang. Hover.com slash Dan sent me. Go check them out. I think that's where I got my hypercritical.co from. Yeah? Yeah. What's it? The CO dot, uh, what's it? That site dot right now? Yeah, you no, did. But, it's registered and, and you're using their name servers too. Yep. NS1.hover.com. There you go. And you've got the privacy on, which is free. Yep. 
So if I, don't I wanted, think I, I, I think I didn't use the code. Though. I'm the worst about this. <laughs> Why don't I use the codes? You got to use it, man. It's like if I wanted to email you, you're, the, the only thing I see is hypercritical.co at contactprivacy.com. So yeah. I'm assuming if I use that, then it will be filtered out and you won't, no one will ever know it's really you behind there. Yeah. Well, the ship has really sailed on me getting spam on my main address. So public to the world, practically. You're a spam free. Yeah. Spam All right. Free um, so that was probably the last bit of follow up on uh, Apple versus ARM stuff. Uh, I might, the Haswell stuff is interesting. I, I don't have it in my notes here, but I'll see if I can freeform some stuff on it. So Haswell is Intel's next uh, microarchitecture uh, after Ivy Bridge. Uh, the changes to the CPU are not that radical. They're, they're adding a couple more, you know, uh, they're making the, the machine a little bit wider, a couple more uh, parts of the chip to execute instructions so they can do more things in parallel. So certain parts of the chips aren't tied up with one thread. Another thread can be going over there. So they're making it a little bit wider. That's what they call it. When you add the ability to do stuff, you add another uh, integer unit so you can do you know, one more extra integer calculation at the same time as you're doing other ones or you know, add another branch unit, another following. So they're making it a little tiny bit wider. Uh, of course, it'll probably... Uh, you know, fixing any small uh, issues they might have had with performance. Uh, I think they're adding more cache and stuff like that. And of course, they're adding the, the much bigger uh, GPUs. Uh, but it's not a radical re-architecture. So you're not, you're not doubling performance or anything. You're getting, you know, percentage-wise a little bit better. You probably are doubling performance of the GPU because GPUs are the type of thing where if you just double the number of execution engines you have, you can double performance because the graphics is, as they say, embarrassingly parallel where you just have this huge, gigantic field of pixels they all need to be processed. Order is usually not important. So you can just, if you have more execution units, you can take bigger chunks of pixels and feed them all at the same time. So they're making the GPU much bigger, much wider, and also much more powerful. And uh, there's that crystal well thing where they have embedded RAM next to the thing. So that will uh, really help it grind through uh, processing uh, much faster. But the other thing they're doing with Haswell is Intel is trying to flex its muscles more in terms of the system integrators and say, we are going to pick the other components or dictate to you the other components that you're allowed to use in your uh, computers that use Haswell. So we're going to do everything from like, you know, voltage regulators and these little turdy little chips that are on the motherboard that aren't that important, you know, IO chips, everything and say, all right, you can only use this set of chips because we've tested these and we work with these manufacturers to make sure these things are low power. There's lots of stories about, some little dinky, unimportant chip somewhere on another board, uh, you'll be able to get like a 90% power savings from that chip if you just change the way it's programmed in a little bit. And like those guys didn't care. They're like, oh, you know, th- th- those guys didn't care about total power consumption. Like our chip works fine. It's reliable. What do, and it takes so, it's such a small amount. It's only, you know, a couple of milliamps or something. Who cares how much power our little dinky uh, IO chip or uh, clock thing or voltage regulator takes, but that stuff adds up. Uh, and, especially in a system where you want like to be able to sort of quiesce the entire system. Is that everybody quiet? Everybody stop going to low power mode and be able to wake up quickly and everything like that. And even in just a regular state, you know, really sip as little power as you can. So Intel wants an entire system design. And so they're not saying you can just take these as well, uh, CPUs and just throw them onto any motherboard with the same old chips because it will make our CPUs look bad because they're like, Oh, those Haswell machines, those really suck memory. You know, uh, if you use the parts that, uh, Intel approves, uh, for use with its uh, CPUs and its chipsets, you will, in theory, get a system that uses far, far less power than an Ivory Bridge system. Uh, 
I keep forgetting whether Haswell is the tick or the talk or whatever, but Intel does this thing I think we've talked about before where they do an entirely new processor architecture on the same process node as their previous architecture, and then they shrink it for the next one. So it's like, it's got to be, I forget it, but anyway, it's Ivy Bridge at 22 nanometer and uh, Haswell at 22 nanometer, and then they're going to shrink Haswell for the next one, and then they're going to do a new architecture after that. Uh, but the focus of Haswell is that they really want to make one CPU that they can really scale down. That you can use Haswell, yes, in a MacBook Pro. You can use Haswell in a MacBook Air. Could you use Haswell on a tablet? Mm, probably not, but maybe the one after that you could use in a tablet. And they're doing everything they can to just reduce the power. Another really neat thing they're doing is, uh, I forget what they call this thing, I don't remember the correct acronym, but uh, when something is on your computer screen, on your Mac or whatever, and the picture isn't changing, like say you're just looking at a single static picture in full screen mode, uh, your computer still has to send a new version of that picture 60 times a second to your LCD. And even though the picture hasn't changed, and it doesn't take a lot of power to do that, but it does take some power. Like you can't right. shut off the GPU part of your system because the picture would go away. Well, in Haswell and, and the associated chipsets and everything, they want support for something that lets it uh, stop sending that signal and just tell the LCD, all right, I'm only going to send you information if the picture changes. If you don't hear anything from me, just keep showing the picture you're showing. The little demo they did for that thing was like they had an LCD hooked up to a Haswell system that was showing you know, just, just a plain old picture. And they unplugged the video cable. And the picture doesn't go away. It just stays there because I think they call it self-refresh or something or whatever. The LCD itself has a smart to know. If I don't hear anything, that just means keep displaying right, the current thing. Keep staying the same thing. And that means that the CPU can turn off. Like, not, not turn off, but like the GPU can, can turn off that part of the system. It doesn't have to always be awake sending the same picture and over and over again. Uh, and that's one of the other advances of, of Haswell is that all these things want some way to like wake up from a sleeping state and go back to sleep and wake up from a sleeping state and go back to sleep. And that sounds crazy from a human perspective. He's like, Oh, I must take, you know, we don't want to keep waking up and going back to sleep, but CPUs are doing this all the time and they're really cranking it up in Haswell to say, okay, we can wake up parts of the system like two milliseconds, which is still an eternity from a CPU perspective, but no human's going to notice two milliseconds lag of waking up the system. Like when you walk over to a computer and you shake the mouse, you're not going to notice it. Oh, actually, that mouse didn't start moving until two milliseconds after it should have. You will never notice that, but it means that the entire computer can be sleep, 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 wake up to do stuff, sleep, 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 wake up to do stuff, sleep, sleep, and that really saves on power. And so they're, they're doing all the same tricks that like you know mobile CPUs and stuff uh, have been doing forever. They're trying to do it in their desktop systems, uh, and it's an uphill battle for them because LCD makers don't want to put extra smarts inside of their panels. That hurts their profit margins. Like, oh, geez, that means the ne- my next generation of LCD uh, panels are going to have to charge more money for because i got to put all the circuitry in there to handle your stupid self-refresh thing. But Intel wants that because they want total system power of PC-caliber systems to go down, hopefully going down, not so much with Haswell, but maybe with the next one at 14 nanometers, like that we start creeping into the same territory that's currently staked out, not by a phone, but at the very least by like, you know, what's the current power envelope for I should pick the iPad 3 because that's probably the biggest, hottest iPad Apple's yeah, ever made. Sure. That power envelope is within striking distance of Intel's next, next generation. Is it really? CPU. Yeah. Like, n- not Haswell, probably, but the one after that, hmm. that, that, in theory, if we could fast, if we go forward to the future and go two Intel generations ahead and bring that chip back, you could put that in an iPad 3. Like, that's the kind of power envelope it, it, it could fit within. And it would be, you know, incredibly powerful. It would, it would be much faster than the iPad 3, probably. Of course, we don't have a time machine. We don't have any, you know, 10 nanometer uh, next next generation Intel chips. 
But that's, I think, where they're going. And it's like a race between can Intel get its stuff down to the power envelope of, of if not phones, then at least tablets before ARM comes and swarms all over them like a Zerg rush. This little StarCraft uh, <laughs> analogy for you there. Uh, and, and as our uh, various uh, anonymous follow-up people said, they're hedging their bets saying if they can't get there, if x86 gets wiped off the map by ARM, at the very least, they should have the fab capacity to become like the world's best fab and maybe be able to charge a premium for that. But that would be very sad for Intel. Uh, so this is actually a very exciting part of the industry to watch. Intel versus ARM versus Apple uh, versus mobile. Uh, keep an eye on that. One to watch. Should we do our final brief sponsor? Sure. Our friends over at Rackspace have this new thing called Mailgun. I don't know if there's, a, I mean, there's a REST API for this, so you could use it with your, your Perl stuff. But Mailgun, it's an email automation engine. Already 10,000 developers are using this thing. What does it do that lets them deliver, parse, and track emails through their applications? Transactional email, as John would say. Company, most companies out there, they just focus on the delivering part, but Mailgun is different. They do have this REST API, so what that means is you can fully automate outgoing and incoming emails. You can get tons of analytics. They don't just deliver the mail. They help you automate the entire application and the email sending process within it. Uh, the nice folks over there have even made a special offer just for 5 by 5 hypercritical listeners. Mailgun.com is where you go, and the coupon 5 by 5 will give you 10% off for your first three months. So, John, if you are building an application and you're sick of fighting with email, just try Mailgun today, mailgun.com. Check them out. And that's it. Someone just put in a good, uh, not this is going to help me remember it. I think we went through this on other shows, but put in a good link to the uh, TikTok strategy to remind me of which, which one is called the tickets. It's because it's reverse. And people say, why don't you just remember that it's reverse of the way you think it is? But then I confuse myself. Anyway, uh, the tick is when they do a shrink and the talk is when they have the new architecture. And I think that's totally wrong. It should be the tick is like tick and then talk. And then tick should be the one where they have the new architecture, but it's not tick is the shrink and talk is the other one. So, uh, what are we on now? So the talk, uh, is going to be Haswell at 22 nanometers because tick was the shrink of Sandy bridge down to Ivy bridge. And then the talk is the same process side as Ivy bridge, the new architecture. And then the tick will be Haswell at 14 nanometers. And then the talk will be, you know. So I put this link in the show notes, shows the tick and the talk with the words and the process sizes. And you can look at it and continue to be confused like I am. I do have one more thing for this thing, but I don't know if we should save it. You you wanted to end early today. And I'm, no, I'm, I'm in, super early. I mean, you know, that's a la- the last thing that I want now is in the last five or six <laughs> shows that, uh, you know, we end early. And, and then, uh, you know, so let's keep going. Well, I do think I'm running out of things here, you know, so this is this is why we're going to have a Q&A show. The Q&A show is always like, oh, you must be running out of things to talk about. Because, well, yes, I am. I, as I said, I think on past shows every week, I think I've got nothing this week. Like for the past for the past several months that I think there's nothing I could possibly talk about. And I really am running low on ideas, especially now it's like the holidays and not not that much exciting stuff is happening. I mean, for crying out loud, we just talked about a Black Friday sale. I don't think that's uh, I mean, it's a good deal for people, but still. Uh all right, so I'll throw this in, and then I'll have. Then I will once again be back to zero things to talk about next week. You, uh-huh. Dan, this is an assignment for you. One of the, one of the days I might come in and say I've got nothing to talk about, and it'll just be totally up to you to decide what we talk. I about. would love that. I have so many. I have a long list of things that I would love to talk to you about. So you just you would, 
you have a long list of things that you would love for me to talk about. But the problem is that you may throw out what is actually really good and interesting and meeting topic. And I'll just have nothing to say on it. And I'll be like, uh, I don't have anything to say about that. And then you got to pick your next good topic. Like they may be great topics, but the question is, can I say anything about them? Uh, all I, right. I, so I think we should take that chance. You tell me, will, will I, will you give me any notice or will no, it, of course not. Okay. There'll never be noticed. Uh, well, all, you've, like, you've given me as much notice as I feel I need at this point. You just, you gotta be ready all the time. Anyway, I'm ready. So, I'll be ready. The final thing I wanted to talk about, a lot of people asking me to talk about the Wii U. Uh, and we did talk about that on a past show, which I can never remember because I'm terrible about remembering what show we talked about things on. Uh, but I mean, I felt like we covered uh, everything there was to cover about the Wii U uh, before I had one. And I'm not, I don't have one yet. I'm planning to get one, but probably not for the holidays. Like I'm assuming I just won't even be able to, uh, to find one in the stores. Uh, so I'll probably wait till the new year to get one. I will be getting one, but it, I probably won't have one during the time this show is still going on. But other people have Wii U's uh, these days. And in particular, the iFixit guys had one and they did a teardown as they always do. Link is in the show notes where they take apart the hardware and look at in what's inside it. And Intel, kind of like Apple, has been in the past several years infuriating about not wanting to talk in detail about what's inside it. It's kind of like... Uh, Rolls-Royce engines for many, many years, a Rolls-Royce car company, uh, unlike every other car company in the world, it would list the specifications of their car, like, oh, the new Corvette, it, uh, the engine has this much horsepower and this much torque at this much RPM, you know, like, and uh, Rolls-Royce would say horsepower, colon, adequate. That's what they put on their on their data sheets, because it's, it's unseemly to talk about horsepower. The, the horsepower of this car is adequate. It's mostly because their cars didn't really have that much horsepower. They're mostly uh, giant torque monsters. But anyway... Uh, Rolls-Royce has since stopped doing that, but Apple and uh, in Nintendo both continue to be like, you don't need to know what's inside our thing. It's an A6 CPU. Don't ask any more questions. What kind of core? No, 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 no. How much RAM? We don't need to even list that on it. Don't. It's just unseemly to talk about how much RAM might possibly be in our device. And of course, you can, you can get the device and find out. So uh, the Wii U, the internals aren't that impressive, but they, Nintendo doesn't want to talk about them. Look, we'll just talk about them in a vague term. So it's up to iFixit to rip these things apart and to find out what's in there and what the deal is. Uh, so if people who haven't seen the Wii U, it looks kind of like the Wii, but it's like bigger, slightly bigger, longer, and has rounded edges, but it's very similar. It looks like a CD-ROM drive from 1991 for your Mac without the caddy. Uh, it's just a big, long optical drive thing. That's what it looks like anyway. So they rip the thing apart, and here are a couple of notable things about it. So inside there, uh, there is a larger fan and heat sink than there was in the Wii. That makes some sense. Uh, and that's because, according to Nintendo itself, they have tripled the heat output from the Wii. Uh, the Wii U has three times as much heat. If There's a link, I think I put this in the show notes, to uh, something where, Apple, where Nintendo actually has been doing something that Apple would never do, uh, having these things where they post themselves sort of interviews with themselves. So the CEO of the company will sit down and have sort of a I don't know if it's a mock interview, but it's kind of like a prepared type of thing where the CEO of the company is talking to the engineers in the company and interviewing them, quote unquote, where it seems like it's kind of all prepared. But anyway, they will reveal some technical information in those things, if, uh, much more so than Apple. It would be as if uh, Tim Cook did like a mock interview with Johnny Ive about the design of, or with Bill, uh, Bill Mansfield, Bob Mansfield about the, the internals and asked he would ask the questions that other people want to ask and, you know, get the answers from them. So Apple doesn't do anything like that, but Nintendo does. And in that thing, they talked about how they had to alter their design to handle the heat and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's nothing earth shattering because like, you know, so what? Every single other console maker has been dealing with this much output for like a generation or two already. Just ask, uh, just 
just ask Microsoft about dealing with heat inside their game consoles and how that went with the 360. Uh, we know it's a hard problem, but uh, the Wii was so wimpy. It wasn't even high def that the cooling solution there was very wimpy. So the Wii U has a more modern looking cooling solution. I hope it's not too loud. I guess people have them already. I haven't heard anyone complain. So uh, I think uh, it'll be okay. Yeah. They've got a Radeon CP, uh, GPU in there. No surprise there. And their, uh, their processor is uh, IBM power-based processor. If you're wondering where the PowerPC went, it's still inside all your game consoles. Uh, the Xbox 360 is PowerPC. They use the Mac, Power Mac G5 as their, one of their dev uh, devices when developing that machine. Uh, the Wii is PowerPC. The GameCube is PowerPC. The Wii U is PowerPC. And even the PlayStation 3, in addition to the crazy cell stuff they have going on there, has a little PowerPC-based core. It's the, the power instruction set that the PowerPC uses. Uh, so no surprise, ATI plus, uh, yeah, now AMD, but ATI plus IBM has been the solution for, uh, the past three generations of Nintendo consoles, the, the, uh, current generation of Xbox console and the current generation of, well, no, PlayStation 3 has NVIDIA graphics, but anyway, that's where these guys, if you want to look where the power PC CPUs went, that's where they are still hiding, uh, the really interesting thing for me about this teardown is when they started tearing apart the gamepad controller. The Wii U gamepad controller is the big controller that looks like you're holding like a lunch tray and in the middle of it is a pretty big screen and on the edges are like, you know, the buttons and the, and the thumbstick controllers. Uh-huh. Uh, they crack that thing open and not the inside inside, but just the battery door. I put a link to this in the show notes. In, when you open the battery door on the back of this thing, you find a rechargeable battery in there. It's 3.7 volt, uh, 1500 milliamp hour rechargeable battery that's good for three to five hours of gameplay that's why they give you a rechargeable one because you know if you after play session you're gonna recharge it but if you look let me let me pull up the image myself so i can actually look at this uh, maybe i didn't put it in the show notes oh i always click on the wrong thing when i want to see the image do you have this image up the battery from, door yeah the one from the show notes yeah did I put it in the show notes? Thought you did. What am I looking at? I got all your notes open. I'm just working through it. All right, a lot of links for this one. Yeah. When you open that it's little the one door, down there, right where it says battery compartment, that one. Yeah, battery compartment. Yeah. I, I thought I put it in there. Yeah, it's it shows the thing there. The guy's holding it upside down. He's lifting up the back part of it, and and what do you see inside that? You see this big cavernous opening <laughs> where the battery should go, and inside a tiny little up, dinky little it's thing. Like, it's like half. It's taking up half the space for the battery. Is this rechargeable battery? And that's. Do you that's, think that it's for like expansion? It's something that you could uh, you could uh, you know like you could put something larger in there another time. Yeah, that that is fascinating to me because three to five hours of playtime off a battery charge is not a lot like a three hour, you know, play session, especially for some kids sitting there in front of the thing. Like before you have to go recharge the thing or plug it in or something, that's not good. It's like, Oh, I guess they couldn't get the gamepad battery life to be any better than three to five hours. But then you open up the back of this thing and say, wait a second, they could have made this thing last longer. They could have it's a weight issue battery. Uh, so the question is why don't they fill that, that battery compartment with battery? One is weight. Wait, uh, they, people say this thing is lightweight. Uh, and it feels good because it's light. That's all well and good, but I don't think they would not make the battery big because they were afraid it would be too heavy, right? I think it just happens to be light because the battery is small and that's good, but that wouldn't have been their reason. I have to think it's cost because batteries cost money and 
they need to shave. They're already selling the Wii U at a loss, which is unprecedented for Nintendo. They always used to sell their hardware uh, for a profit from day one, unlike every other console maker. But they're selling the Wii U. I think they said either at cost or at a loss in the beginning because it's got more like it's not just a game console. It's a game console plus like a sort of a little half of a handheld game console. Like it's more complicated than other uh, things. They're not just selling a box that connects to your TV. They're selling a box that connects to your TV with an optical drive. Plus this other thing that has its own screen on it, which costs money and, and uh, all sorts of sensors and a battery and stuff like that. And if they can shave cost anywhere, maybe they said, well, one way we can shave a couple bucks off is by shipping it with a smaller battery. And then we, maybe we can make that up by selling the inevitable aftermarket batteries that actually fill that uh, entire uh, battery compartment. And we'll make lots of money on the aftermarket batteries because we'll sell it for like 20 bucks when we saved only $5 by making the battery smaller. And that strikes me as chintzy, but that is, that's amazing. It's like if you bought, you know, a MacBook Pro five years ago, you open up the battery bay and saw that the battery Apple ships with takes up half of the room that the battery could be. And I mean, you know, as, as I think Marco said in the last show, or no, maybe it was a different show, but they, they, they <laughs> Apple puts batteries in every square inch of their cases right. they could possibly fit battery in. It's like batteries coming out the, the, the edges of the thing. And here is Nintendo shipping something, leaving gigantic swaths of empty space where there could be battery, but there isn't. Never mind that they could have made the battery compartment itself even bigger. Uh, so I found that amazing and uh, also slightly disappointing. And I assume I would be buying an aftermarket battery because three to five hours is not a long time. Uh, another thing which we knew already, but it's interesting, I'd forgotten about it already and seeing it in the, in the iFixit teardown uh, was a good reminder the Wii U gamepad controller has NFC, near field communication, right. the little sensor that's not in the iPhone uh, that, you know, other cell phones have and that they use reportedly in Japan and other advanced civilizations where you can just rub your phone against something or wave your phone in front of something and pay for something. It's, it's a sensor that works in very close proximity. It's not Bluetooth. It's not Wi-Fi. It's like in the, in the range of things like Wi-Fi is long range. You know, 3G is the longest range, or not 3G, but, you know, cellular data is the longest range. Then there's Wi-Fi, then there's Bluetooth, and then there's NFC. And NFC is really, you know, you've got to be in close proximity. Uh, and the reason I forgot about the fact that the, the GamePay controller has NFC in it is because nothing uses it. Nothing, no game in the launch lineup uses the NFC sensor. So the GamePad thing has tons of sensors in it. It's got gyroscopes, accelerometers, microphone, a camera. Does it have a camera? I think it has a camera. Uh, you know, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi. Everything in there, including NFC, uh, even though nothing currently supports it. Uh, presumably, something will support it. I mean, it, it, the obvious thing is a game like Skylanders. Do you know about this? Yeah, Skylanders is the game that they usually have set up in a Toys R Us or a Target or something where it has like a little platform that's connected and they you have like a real, a real life action figure, but it doesn't, I don't think it really moves. And then you put it on this pad or this little thing and that character then enters the game and that's I guess you and you are then playing the game as this character while it stands on the on the panel yeah it's a genius marketing strategy of they will sell you toys and the toys can appear in the game so by buying a physical toy and touching that physical toy to some sensor or putting it in front of a camera or doing whatever then suddenly that physical toy appears in the game so if you want a new guy for your game you would say, oh, daddy, daddy, take me to Toys R Us where I will buy the physical toy and then I'll bring that home and touch it to my game console. And then the thing, instead of just doing a digital download, they want you to have an actual toy component. And that game is wildly popular and it's a genius strategy to extract money from children. 
Uh, I mean, there are card games like this too. Like there was ones where the, the PlayStation camera would pick up what cards you're playing with the physical card games. It's an integration of the physical world into the virtual world. Uh, so that's a no brainer for things like that. Not Skylander specifically because they would just, you know, probably just continue to have their little Skylander sensor base thing or whatever. But things like that where there's a something in the physical world that you touch to your gamepad controller or bring past it and that makes it appear in the virtual world. Oh, so there's a, here's once again a reminder that that thing is in there, that the gamepad controller has every sensor known to man, and the possibilities of things that you could do with that controller are, are, uh, are vast. Uh, the other thing about the gamepad teardown is that there are no big heat-producing chips inside that gamepad. They gave, uh, the iFixit thing gave out like part numbers and stuff that I tried to Google, and all I found were other gamepad teardowns, so I don't know what those chips are. I'm not going to read off the numbers on them. You can look at the effects that tear down yourself, but clearly none of them are big heat producers. There's no giant heat sink and fans and stuff like that. Uh, all of which is to say that this is not like a, a PlayStation Vita or Vita, as you say. <laughs> right, that's it, exactly what I say. It's not a, hand, a handheld <laughs> gaming console. Yeah. Like the, the, the brains are not in the gamepad. The yeah, brains it's just, are just the pad. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's really it's just a really, really, really fancy controller with a screen and a bunch of sensors. It's not a separate uh, console. So uh, the Wii U has a feature where you can play the game on the gamepad. Like someone can use the TV to look at something else and you just look at the gamepad screen and you can continue to play your game there. Uh, but those games are not running on the gamepad. They're running on the Wii U thing that's attached up to your TV despite the fact that you're playing them on the screen that you're holding in your hand. All that brings up, especially in the time leading up to the Wii U's release, worries about lag. You're like, all right, well, so... The game is running on the little thing that looks like a CD-ROM drive attached to my TV, and I'm sitting on a couch here, and I'm playing it here. Like, how does the picture get? It's not going through the TV. How does the picture get to the gamepad? And if it takes a long time, it's like, you know, can you imagine trying to play a first-person shooter using VPN or VPN, uh, VNC, (laughs) right, or remote desktop or whatever you're, you know, it's like the, the lag. Anyone who's used remote desktop or VNC knows the terrible lag of just you know using menus and stuff, and you have to do all sorts of tricks to try to make it tolerable. And the resolution of a high definition game, because the Wii U finally is high resolution, that's comparable to the resolution of a computer monitor from a couple of years ago, right? And it was terrible a couple of years ago to try to even over like gigabit Ethernet, you'd try to use remote desktop, and it would just feel slow and laggy. Forget about trying to play a game like that. So everyone was worried about what the what the lag would be. So now that people have these things in their hands, they're doing uh, tests on them. Uh, this is from a developer of uh, the Rayman game. Uh, there's many links talking about this developer interview, which was apparently Nintendo Power. I put a link in the show notes to the Ars Technica store. It says uh, Rayman Legends developer, developer. Yeah, let's try again. Rayman Legends developer, Michelle Ansel, if I said that name correctly, has now confirmed that the gamepad image on the Wii U suffers only 1 60th of a second delay. Here's a quote from him. It's crazy because the game is running in full HD on the television. We are streaming another picture on the gamepad screen and it's still 60 frames per second. And the latency on the controller is just 1 60th of a second. So it's one frame late. So if you do 60 frames per second and you're uh, 1 60th of a second behind, that means the gamepad is only one frame behind where it should be uh, uh, behind where the television, uh, the signal going to the television. And forget how many frames behind our, our minds actually are. Yes, that's not... Think about that. So he says, it's crazy, it's so fast, it's almost instant. That's why it responds so well. So that is typical Nintendo attention to detail. There have been many complaints about the Wii U in particular with the interface and the non-game portions of it, but once you get into the game, Nintendo knows what's important, and that's responsiveness and latency. Uh, 
Uh, the Ars Technica article says, while one frame delay might actually be noticeable by some of the craziest pro fighting game players, the minor difference is not going to be detectable by normal people. And now here is the fascinating thing about this. This is actually something from June uh, where someone was filming someone playing a Wii U game in June, probably at like one of the various conventions, maybe it was E3, where in the, in the frame of the video, you can see the television screen that is showing the same image that is also on the gamepad screen. So you can see both screens, the gamepad where, where the image is playing and also the television, because you can run it in this mode, a mode where the image is displayed both on the television and on the gamepad. I don't know why you would do that, uh, but it's possible. And in this video, you can watch it and sort of go frame by frame in slow motion through it. And you can see that the gamepad screen is actually seven frames ahead of the, of the television screen. So it's 116 milliseconds ahead of the television screen. So you'll see Mario jumping, and you'll see he is seven frames ahead of where he where he is on the television screen. Uh, and so wait a second, we thought that the gamepad was supposed to be one frame behind, one sixtieth of a second behind. What explains the fact that the gamepad is actually showing uh, an image seven frames ahead of the television? Well, if you think back to our television episode from many episodes ago, another one that I can't remember the episode number four, I think we talked about this, is that uh, modern high definition televisions, especially uh, LCD televisions, do all sorts of processing to the image that they're shown. So the signal may be coming out of the Wii U and going into the back of the television. That signal may be one sixtieth of a second ahead of the signal that is going to the gamepad. But once it hits the back of the television, the television doesn't immediately display it. The television does lots of processing. Some of that processing may involve comparing the new image it got to the previous image it got and like doing a diff between them or massaging them. Some of that processing in any televisions that still happen to be around with dynamic LED backlighting might be to figure out which portion of the backlights need to be lit for this frame of video. And is it different than the previous video? All of that processing, you know, uh, motion compensation, dithering and, uh, you know, noise reduction and stuff that processing takes time. So, from the time the signal hits the back of the television to the time the television actually displays the, that new frame could be significant. Uh, and this is what's known as input lag on televisions, where uh, the television itself introduces a delay. And apparently this television was introducing an eight-frame delay. Uh, you know, and so that's why the gamepad appeared to be seven frames ahead, because the gamepad didn't, doesn't have any delay. It gets the signal, shows it immediately, doesn't do any weird processing or anything, but the signal going to the back of the television has to fight its way through the television's processing. And that's why... Many, many televisions have what they call game mode, where it will, it will disable some or all of the video processing, making the image look uglier usually. But at the, at the, uh, the benefit of that is that you get less input lag. Uh, so apparently this television that was set up at this uh, convention center, wherever they were playing this demo, was either not set up in game mode, or it could very well be that this was game mode and that eight frames of lag is actually the good version. And if you had all the process, video processing on, it would be 40 frames of lag or something like that. Uh, so... This is a fascinating example of like, oh, so Nintendo made a gamepad. Also, what big deal? I heard Microsoft has the same thing with its uh, glass thing with the Xbox 360. To do this right, to really have a handheld screen that lets you play a game, you either have to do the processing on the handheld thing itself, like do the play the actual game on your iPad or on your tablet or on your Surface or whatever. Uh, or if you're going to do the processing on the actual console thing attached to the TV, you've got your work cut out for you because you really need to send a full HD resolution image wirelessly to this con- to this controller and have it display the thing and, and try to get as little lag as possible. So one sixtieth of a second lag is actually pretty amazing, and I applaud uh, Nintendo's efforts making this 
this is an Apple-like technological feat where it's like, it's how like does math. it work? Like it, it seems impossible, and yet there it is. It's real. Yeah, and like you would think, oh, the gamepad's got to have some sophisticated stuff in it. You open it up, and it's like, no, it's just a bunch of chips. So what they ended up doing was they sort of defined their own limited distance, uh, you know, Wi-Fi variant where it doesn't work the same distance that Wi-Fi would, but like you know, they could define their own protocol basically to wirelessly communicate between the Wii U and the gamepad. And they could sacrifice whatever they wanted to sacrifice. Sac- you know, you could only need to talk to two of them at once because I think the, the gamepad supports up to two uh, things. So if they could cut any corners there, they would. And the range doesn't have to be more than like, I think they list the range as like 26 feet. Uh, it actually goes way farther than that. People have tested up to like 100 feet, but in typical Nintendo fashion, they're very conservative. They say, don't go outside 26 feet. Uh, so you can't probably take the gamepad up to the room seven floors up in your gigantic mansion and have the Wii U downstairs like you were 160 a second lag is probably gone then maybe you you know nintendo says 26 feet maybe if you have a ranch house you can get 100 feet away uh so you do kind of have to be in the same room or close to it to continue this experience but uh i think that's a reasonable trade-off and and if in exchange you get this amazing responsiveness that you couldn't have got with any other you know non-proprietary protocol uh you know bully for them and you're gonna get what if we send you one is it going away gift well, how's that going to help because i would actually use it and talk about it on the show you mean yes. i'm not sure how much I would, the reason i'm not getting one is because none of the launch games are like sort of must-haves for me like yeah but if we if we just you know if we send you one will you come will you talk about it i don't know i mean i don't know see how what i'm talking about see what i'm talking about i know i know it's hard to get you to talk I, and I am going to get one, I and mean, I'm going to get the black one because that's the good one. Unfortunately, I made, they made it in two different colors, but the uh, deluxe one is in black, and uh, I would rather have it in white, but I do want to have the deluxe. deluxe one comes with a packing game and comes with more memory, which is the important part. Uh, but I'm not, like, the, the games that are out now, 2D Mario's that I'm not really into. People are going to think that's sacrilegious, but I, I prefer the 3D ones. Uh, and Nintendo Land, which is a bunch of mini games, which will be fun, I'm sure, but you know, not a reason for me to rush out and, and get the system. And Zombie U looks interesting, but probably too hard for me. You should read the reviews of that game if you haven't already. It's a, it's a kind of a shame it's a launch title because I might get eclipsed and uh, maybe they'll have a sequel that will be better, but it's a very interesting concept. Uh, so I'd be interested to try that, but I don't know. Uh, I, and also, I don't think these Wii U's are actually around these days. It's kind of, uh, they're kind of scarce. I think. I think I can find you one. Crowdsource it. Yeah. Would you accept one if we managed to find one and get it to you? You think you're going to find... Uh, I don't know. I'm going to try. If you Find a black Wii U and then and have it shipped to my house in time to, to do a show about it? Five weeks. Yeah, maybe. Listen, 5x5.tv slash contact. Do not pick Hypercritical. Just pick Contact Dan Benjamin from the list. If you can get me one of these and I'll PayPal you uh, some money and we'll get it to John. Has to be a black one though. Has to be a black one. Or I end mm-hmm. up returning it back to you. Because you should, no, I mean, you could keep it fair. That, that's actually, no, I would, want you to have it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get one myself, you know. Yeah, you're going to get a black one from uh, from us. All right, we'll see about that. All right. That would definitely give us a topic for a show if I happen to. Maybe a bonus show, maybe a 101st episode. Oh, let's not go crazy. <laughs> All right. So if you want to, you can follow John Syracusa. He's Syracusa on Twitter, S I R A C U S A. He is Syracusa on alpha.app.net and I'm, I'm going to do this just for you he is Syracusa on tent.is look at that just for you and uh, you can follow me I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter Dan on Alpha and uh, 
appreciate you listening. You can go to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 95 in order to see the show notes that uh, John has curated and put together for you. So go there, check it out. And uh, we truly appreciate it. Anything else, John? We, we good for this week. People should still remember to leave their reviews. Yes. Yes, even though the show is ending. In fact, I would say all the more reason to leave them. It's your last chance to that's leave right. a review that's timely. There you go. You know, there's no I, sense I, I, in, a, in reading a book that's 100 years old and saying, that's a pretty good book. Like, by now, you know, you want to review it when it's fresh. This will stay up on the iTunes store. Forever. Right? Like after forever. the show is over, it'll just be sitting there. It'll be you, there forever. And people will be able to get all 100 episodes or just the last Forever. No, it's all 100. If you subscribe to the RSS feed or the iTunes feed, they're all there. And they'll always right. be there. There you go. And that's It'll be like promise. seasons of television shows that have been canceled. It'll still be there. We're never going to. They'll always be there. All right. So that's it. Have a good week. John, we'll see you next week. Yep. Yep.